Hello, and welcome to Energy Oracles. I'm Paul Hicking, Editor-in-Chief at Petroleum Economist, and I'm joined by Seth Haskell, one of our in-house experts to discuss the so-called recent pause on US LNG projects. Now, the Biden administration's headline-grabbing news to freeze all new US LNG export approvals has garnered a lot of grandstanding, uh, a lot of posturing and a lot of hyperbole about potentially its environmental claims and what it can achieve and the damage it could potentially do to the fossil fuel in- industry. But cutting through all that noise, it's actually a bit more banal and more maybe symbolic than substantial. And maybe Seth, you can elaborate a little bit more on the actual implications of, of what's going on. Thanks, Paul. Happy to be here. I think last time we, we were on a podcast together, we were also talking about US LNG. So get to pick up some of those some of those strands together here. Yeah, I, I think the big question facing the industry at the moment is is, is how serious this pauses. Uh, so literally what, what what's happening is and what the, the administration has said it's doing is it's is pausing the approval process for the Department of Energy to grant exports to export export permits to export LNG to non-free trade agreement nations. And that's essentially all nations. There's very few countries with um, free, tra- free trade and natural gas agreements with the US and they represent quite a small market. Uh, so if you are a project that has not been permitted to export to non-free trade agreement nations, which essentially, you know, are you, are you not under construction already? You need such a permit and that has now been paused while the administration reviews the process for issuing those permits. And, and this is something that has happened before. It happened in 2012, I believe, and also in 2018, when the administration essentially said, like, you know, LNG is kind of new. We, you know, administration at those times said the LNG is kind of new. We need to um, figure out a review process for this that takes into account all of the impacts it has. The DOE has a remit to investigate whether projects are in the public interest. So the idea is let's expand the for what we're considering when we're considering what's in the public interest for these projects. Now, the language that the Biden administration has couched their announcement in is very climate centric. So, you know, there's reference to what's the impact of, of LNG exports on, on U.S. natural gas prices. But there's also, you know, this is the first paragraph is, you know, there's hurricanes and wildfires and we care about the climate crisis. And the last three paragraphs are all the things Biden has done to address the climate crisis in the past. So I think the headline here, although there are other considerations in terms of, you know, perhaps they'll expand the review process for what the impact is on on domestic natural gas prices in the U.S. The headline process here is that they're looking to consider the impact of these export terminals, greenhouse gas emissions, over their lifetime as part of that public interest review. So are these these terminals good or bad for the climate? And is that something we should consider when we're approving them as part of the DOE export process? So that's, that, that could be a lot of things. And that's, that's the uncertainty here. You know, are, are, is the, the administration going to look at these terminals and decide that, you know, any new export projects are, are bad enough for the climate that they, they need to be, stops and it'll function as an essential ban on on additional permitting approval and that would endanger a lot of capacity i mean i'll give the the biggest number you can give which is around 100 million tons per year um more reasonable number though i you put 50 million tons per year there that's a lot of capacity that's more than 10 percent of the export capacity that exists globally right now that could be a big deal if this ends up working as a functional ban 
Of course, this could also just be exactly what the administration says, which is just a pause, which is still a big deal because these, these projects are going to be delayed 12 to 18 months while they review this process, while they restart the review process for projects to then review them under the new terms you know, in the new year, which will surely be a more stringent review process that will take longer. There'll be a slowdown here, potentially a cancellation, not clear which. And if we could talk about a little bit about which projects are most vulnerable here, which ones are the big ones that you'd see that are most at risk? Yeah, so the, the two that come to mind right away are, are Commonwealth LNG and Calcasio Pass 2, CP2. Uh, and that's a venture global project and, and Commonwealth LNG is independent. Um, so collectively, that's about 20 million tons per year of capacity. And in my reading, both of those projects were essentially waiting on export permit approval in order to take FID and move forward. And as in, if they received export permit approval now, you know, I would have expected FID to happen within a month, maybe two. Um, so the reason I say that is that in the case of CP2, it's a phase project. It's a total 20 million ton per year project, but they're building it in phases. So two 10 million ton per year phases. The first phase of that project, the first 10 million ton per year phase, it's got something like 9 million tons per year of sales and purchase agreements lined up. So this is a pretty slam dunk economically. You know, they, they know they're, they're, the demand for their product is lined up. They, they're ready to do it. Um, for Commonwealth LNG, it's a little bit more complicated. They only have two to three million tons per year of SBAs lined up, but they lined up a whole host of uh, heads of agreements with uh, companies like Gunver and Summit Oil in Bangladesh. Um, Kimmeridge, I believe, has a heads of agreement with them. Um, there's a couple other ones as well, I think uh, Met as well. Um, so my read from the outside on these heads of agreements is that essentially these companies were waiting to see what happened with the export permit approval process in order to firm up these agreements. Um, and that if an export permit approval had been granted, they would have been firmed up very quickly and we would have moved to FID very quickly. And I say that because Commonwealth LNG's non-free trade agreement export permit has been uh, sort of languishing for an unusually long amount of time. And it's not quite clear what the story is there, perhaps an indication of an early uh, of this policy change earlier. You know, it's been usually these export permits were granted within a couple months of a project receiving FERC approval. And Commonwealth has received FERC approval in uh, 2022, November 2022. And, you know, they still don't have an export permit. So there was a little bit of what's going on here. So I think companies were waiting to see what would happen uh, with that export permit approval before they firmed up. So those are the two projects that are most immediately impacted. But there's a host of other projects. I mean, you mentioned to me before we started talking, Port Arthur, phase two. Uh, there's a project that's FERC approved, uh, that's waiting on DOE approval, but doesn't quite have the SBAs lined up. But also looking at um, train expansions, it's being passed for Chenier, as well as at Corpus Christi liquefaction for Chenier. There's expansion projects there that uh, are gonna be held up as a result of this policy change. Uh, and, and then a lot of other smaller projects. I mean, you're looking at, uh, or more early stage projects, things like Lake Charles, LNG, uh, Freeport train four. So there is a whole train here, but I think those two big ones right away, you know, Calcasio Pass and Commonwealth, those guys, I think you would have expected FID in the next couple months without this policy change. It's it's amazing, really. I just wanted to take it back a step to the to the wider issue, which and uh, the what it seems like LNG and gas has been the ultimate energy and climate fumble by the whole industry, by policymakers. You saw that COP twenty eight didn't really have uh, much of a reference to gas. 
kind of seen as a transition fuel, but so, you know, environmentalists want to call it a fossil fuel and attack it for that. You've got the industry itself saying, well, what about coal to gas switching being crucial in terms of cleaning up emissions, uh, crucial for, for energy security, even in the US. You know, you look at it from one side and the US now is the, the ultimate oil and gas provider, number one, uh, and never has it probably thought that kind of some kind of energy independence, although that's pretty much a myth, but it's that kind of ideal looks so vulnerable and so uncertain and so so weak at foot. Um, it's incredible. And you see the, the situation where, well, I'm trying to think about Biden administration. He's in some ways he's been attacked, but he's also been fairly favorable to the fossil fuel industry. And you saw it with Willow, a lot of flip-flopping over that. And then the ConocoPhillips' Willow development. Now, ASCO got approved, but there were certain certain things that were blocked at the same time uh, in terms of on environmental grounds. And even this pause, it allows, you know, we go into an election year in the US and with Trump, you know, obviously known as a, as a very friendly to the fossil fuel industry. And this pause almost, does it allow us just to get through to the elections? And then we all start again as a same situation as it was before prior to this pause what's your take on the kind of the wider context of this situation yeah i think you, you mentioned a few things that i'll touch on um one is I, I want to talk about the political political politics of it not too much but i, I have seen this floating around I, I don't think we quite have a good sense of of what is driving this politically um i've certainly seen you know biden's been under attack from the left recently this is something for the left but i i i'm dubious that um uh, climate policies are, are popular generally. Uh, that does, I mean, often they should they need to be pursued despite being unpopular. Uh, but uh, I'm a little bit you know dubious of that argument because I I'm just not convinced that climate policies are popular. Uh, I also think that this policy has been discussed. I mean, it came up when we last talked about US LNG that uh, there's been rumors floating around that this exact policy change, that we're going to start looking at climate emissions, climate change impact as part of the public interest um, remand at the USDOE. I mean, that's been around for six months, eight months. I mean, people have been talking about it a little bit. I was certainly did not think it would happen, but I was aware of it. So I think any sort of, there's a very short term, like political bounce here, uh, I think more likely, and, and my general sense of how politics happens, this is an idea that's been gestating for a long time with people in the administration, particularly within the DOE. Uh, and, you know, perhaps political uh, motives tipped it one way or the other, uh, but it, it didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, this is this is something that's been going on for a while. Uh, the other thing I want to quickly touch on is you, you talked about like the, the climate arguments here, and I, I want to run through those because I... I mean, cards on the table, I, I think this is a, a bad policy change um, from from the perspective. I, I think it doesn't do too much for the climate while uh, being, you know, bad for the industry. Um, but, you know, I want to I want to, you know, go through those climate arguments so, so people can hear them. Um, and first, I, I you have this idea that, that natural gas is, is much worse for or liquefied natural gas in particular is much worse for the environment than, than generally accepted. Um, 
Uh, and this is something that, you know, climate activists who have been involved in, in trying to stop these terminals and, and, and trying to convince the Biden administration to take these positions, people like Bill McKibben, um, you know, they, they lean on this argument quite heavily, which is to look at uh, essentially if you you methane emissions along the whole supply chain for natural gas, this is obviously a huge issue in the industry. Those emissions are quite hard to pin down exactly how much is escaping at various points along the upstream. So if you pick a very high number for what's escaping, something like 3.5%, as opposed to, you know, the official numbers, which tend to be around 1.5% or or the, I'm going to say actual numbers, when people go out in the US, they tend to get a number around 2.5%. And if you pick a higher number, and then you also pick a shorter time frame for your climate model, which is, you know, not a completely unreasonable thing to do, because um, methane is quite a fast dissipating greenhouse gas, it, it, it disappears within 10, 20 years of entering the atmosphere, unlike CO2, which sticks around for hundreds of years, you can end up with very severe climate impacts from liquefied natural gas uh, over the next 20 years. Um, but if you look at the longer climate model, even if you're looking at higher methane emissions numbers, uh, you're still saying, okay, natural gas is much, much better than coal. But it's possible to spin a model that's not from nowhere that uh, tells you that uh, natural gas is quite bad for the climate. And, and I think that's motivating a lot of a lot of the thinking on this topic. Um, the other two issues to bring up are that um, climate related are there's sort of a connection here with um, domestic natural gas price consideration, because if, if an enormous amount of new capacity is built in the US that is going to start impacting domestic natural gas prices uh, by making them notably higher. But I actually don't think that would happen because I think the industry upstream is capable of meeting that demand. I mean, you can increase production in the U.S. to, you know, cope with this extra LNG export demand. But then you're kind of saying, well, we're increasing fossil fuel production, dropping prices. There's a certain there's a certain emotional element here where the amount of capacity that will exist globally for LNG export in, uh, you know, 2035 is greater than the total if you look at net zero emission scenarios, and there's obviously many net zero emission scenarios, but if you look at net zero emission scenarios put up by the IEA, they're looking at like, oh, 900 billion cubic meters per year should be global gas demand in 2050. Well, that's about how much LNG I expect will be being produced every year in, in 2050. So there's a certain acknowledgement that we're just not going to hit those targets by by building these, these t terminals. But I don't think the policy is hitting the right place you want to hit demand you know there's no stopping the lng doesn't really change that equation even if it is a little bit galling to just be acknowledging we're missing targets like that isn't there kind of a an oxymoron almost that actually which is the kind of tension in the the industry if you if actually you invest more in lng you actually create more you create more supply, you bring down prices, you make it more competitive. One, you improve affordability for a lot of people, especially in poorer climates. The other key, the other key thing about, about this is that you make it competitive with, with coal. Uh, and the sense is that because coal is so cheap, uh, that if you can bring down the price of gas, then ultimately you you make it make it more likely that not just in the US, but elsewhere, that they'll, they'll go towards gas which is the big win in terms of emissions which is what i think the u.s chamber of commerce made an argument about that as well and isn't there isn't there that side of the argument that actually in the here and now that actually more gas could actually in a way would actually reduce the pressure on emissions conversely only if but unless you say suggesting that 
all that money that's invested in renewables and can can actually meet that extra extra energy demand globally, maybe not in the US, but globally. So th- there is a complicated circular argument going on as well, no? I, I agree with you, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I think probably more LNG. I mean, there's something to be said for, um, you know, you make energy cheaper, you increase energy demand, energy demand goes up, probably bad for the climate, but good for people. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I, I think that, um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't think hitting LNG is is particularly great from a from a uh, climate perspective. I mean, I you can argue, you know, perhaps gas is competing more with renewables than it's competing with coal. I don't think that's true, but uh, you know, certainly that's that's something that some people would suggest. Um, I, I mostly just don't think that this is a big climate issue. I, I don't think you know LNG. You know, I don't think LNG is going to make wonderful decarbonization for the world. Uh, but I also don't think it's it's a net terrible impact either. You know, I, I just think this is a it's a policy that's trying to improve the climate situation that I think will not do so much for the climate situation, uh, while also you know hurting the industry. And, and, and in that case, why are you doing it? Um, that being said, I, I want to take a step back here and, and say what I said at the beginning of this conversation, which we don't quite know what the contours of this policy are yet. Um, so, you know, if, if the net effect of this is all that just these terminals all get delayed an extra, you know, 14 months, um, I mean, that's not amazing, but it's it's certainly not like, you know, wow, a dramatic policy shift. If anything, there's there's arguments to be made that a delay of 14 months won't even be that bad. Uh, and this would be to say that at the moment, the LNG supply chain is, is construction supply chain is stressed a little bit. I, you know, I, Bechtel is building four terminals in the U.S. alone. The ability of the LNG construction supply chain to absorb an extra, you know, 50 million tons per year of LNG construction this year. I mean, I, I would expect terminals to see delays anyway uh, if they were moving forward at the moment. So if they get delayed 14 months, they might not actually, the start of construction gets delayed 14 months, might not actually delay startup by 14 months because, you know, the supply chain situation is going to be a little bit easier 14 months from now. Um you know, when, when Golden Pass trains start finishing and, and, and the latter half of these LNG terminal construction process is going to be a little bit easier because uh, they're not going to be competing with the 200 and some million tons per year of, of LNG export capacity under construction globally right now. And, and, if, and if there is a more stringent environmental standards to meet, then potentially that's, that gives more credence and weight to the LNG argument. If you can, if you can stand it up a little bit more against certain criteria, then maybe that's a that's a, a potential you know win going forward and a bit more a bit more of a robust argument for investing in LNG. And I, before we wrap up, I just wanted to also talk a little bit about the the winners and losers in these situations. Uh, if if things depending on how it pans out, but it's interesting again because it p- plays out against an energy security background of of Russia, which as we all know for the past two years has had an uneasy relationship with providing supply uh, to Europe. And obviously, U- US being has been the one of the big uh, winners from that scenario. But then you've seen with the US coming on as the number one and, you know, the other big players like Qatar and Australia obviously think they may start to benefit if, if LNG projects are curtailed in the US. And you see around the world, Argentina and even Saudi Arabia, known as kind of an oil producer but has lots of ambitions around you know upping its uh gas lng uh uh ability especially all the hydrocarbons it has there so what's your what's your sense of the sort of winners and losers uh on this situation 
Yeah, well, I think looking at the U.S. first, um, there's there's a couple projects that perhaps stand to win from this policy, and that's essentially are you a project that's already permitted and can meet your export commencement deadline? Uh, and I think the one for that is uh, Glenfarn has a project Texas LNG, quite small, four million tons per year. But I mean, they have an export commencement deadline in 2027. They're looking to start up in 2027. You know, that project looks a lot better than it did two months ago. I mean, you're like, wow, they, they can just go. So if you've got money floating around and you're looking to you were looking to invest in these other terminals, I mean, you might want to look at Texas LNG. Uh, more more dubiously, uh, next decade's Rio Grande LNG, they hold exp export commencement deadlines for 27 million tons per year of capacity. They're currently only building about 17 million tons per year of capacity. There's two additional trains that they're developing. Uh, they've already agreed to EPC terms with Bechtel, I believe. Um, so I think they would be hard pressed to finish those two additional trains before their deadline in 2027. Uh, but it's certainly something they might think about, uh, you know, potentially apply for a, an extension to, the, to their export commencement deadline, you know, with construction almost done, that's maybe more likely to be granted. Uh, they're also, uh, next decade, incorporating CCUS in the terminal. These are electric drivetrains. So there's, you know, a better climate argument made for these projects, for that project. So uh, that's something to look for as well. And that's quite a bit more capacity. Uh, outside of the U.S., there's actually, like, surprisingly little uh, LNG capacity that's sort of ready to ready to go. Um, in Canada, you maybe see LeSims, you know, that's the uh, First Nation sponsored project on the, the West Coast. Cedar LNG, uh, but beyond that, I mean, Abadi LNG in Indonesia. And then I think there's a lot of African projects that, that start looking a little bit better. And, you know, all these Nigeria FLNGs and, and Mozambique, you know, maybe Total Energies wants to get that restarted sooner than they otherwise would. But, you know, the same issues with, with African projects that there always are, uh, you know, are still going to be issues for those projects. It's going to be hard for them to find financing. So I, I actually don't think there's like, a lot of projects that wouldn't have otherwise gone forward globally uh, that will go forward. And, and part of that is just, you know, gas in the U.S. is, is cheap and it's, it's a really good place to do LNG because gas is cheap and that, that'll do it. Um, and, and there's not a lot of other places that can, that can match the U.S. on that front. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, certainly Africa is also, you know, had got a lot of uh, gas and energy projects. A good point to mention as well. Um, and obviously where energy security is a, is a, is a crucial issue and energy affordability. Um, I'd like to leave it there. Um, I'd like to say thanks to Seth Haskell uh, from the GEI team who looks at, attracts lots of projects and infrastructure across, across a whole range of energies. And from myself, a trade economist, and check out Hydro Economist and Carbon Economist. Thanks for listening.